Well, good afternoon, Hellas Church. It's good to be with you. My name is Andrew. I serve as one of the pastors here. The privilege of leading us through our study of the scriptures tonight. Um, you know, one of the things, if you're new to our church, we do go by the name the Hallows Church. That's how we identify our faith family in the city, and we're one church in three expressions. We have this Fremont expression, and then we have one in the Edmonds, North Seattle area, and then one over in the West Seattle portion of our city. And the reason why we identify ourselves as the Hallows Church is because ultimately that's our heartbeat, that's our drive. We want to be a family of faith that hallows God, that hallows the name of God in our midst and in our city, which means we want to regard the character, the person, the purpose, the the plan of God we want to regard as sacred in our lives, in our church, for this city, and for the world, which is why we go by the name the Hallows Church. Now, our ability to hallow the Lord and to regard God as sacred is tied to our commitment to God's word, our commitment to what God has spoken, our commitment to what God has revealed. One of my deepest convictions as a pastor of, of this church, as I think about Christianity and the landscape of uh, the United States of America and the world at large, is that a church's relevance is relative to her ministry of the word. A church's rele relevance is relative to the degree in which she gives herself to the ministry of the word. Now, as a church, we do a lot of things in this city. We seek to serve the city of Seattle in many ways. We believe in loving our neighbors in practical, tangible ways. We believe in advocating for, um, for various forms of justice that corresponds with the gospel and the ethics of the kingdom of God. We are committed to defending the defenseless and feeding the hungry and helping the hurting. We want to serve our city well. But the one ministry our church cannot do without is the ministry of the word. It's what sets us apart as a faith family. It's what sets us apart as a people in Seattle who exists for the sake of Seattle. And the glorious irony is that to the degree in which we give ourselves to the ministry of the word, that's when all those other ministries are going to explode. That's where we're going to find ourselves with the energy and the enthusiasm and the motivation to go and to love our neighbors and to help the hurting and to do the hard work of racial justice and various things in our city. We do those things because the ministry of the word is fueling and forming our lives. You know, all throughout the history of God's people, uh, the ministry of the word has been at the center of their life and worship when they've been the most healthy and when they've been the most effective. And the pattern for that was actually set at the beginning of time when, all, when creation was spoken into existence. Now, as some of you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a reader of C.S. Lewis's works, and you know that he's written a series of kids' fiction stories known as the Chronicles of Narnia. Well, the first, very first book in that seven-book series is called The Magician's Nephew. And in that book, Lewis describes Aslan, who represents Christ in the story, kind of how he created Narnia and how Narnia came into being. And it's a beautiful, sanctified, imaginative uh, description of Aslan singing Narnia into existence. And I, and I love it. I think it's beautiful. And this might show my hand in terms of my bias, but when you read the account in Genesis chapter 1 and you kind of read how it all really went down... Creation came into being not in response to a song. Creation came into being in response to a sermon. Creation came into being in response to the ministry of God's word when he said, let there be, when he spoke light into being, when he created the world through spoken word, through a sermon that God preached at the beginning of time that centered, that focused on the power of the word and, and the significance that the word would play in the life of his people throughout all of history. 
This is why the people of Israel would give themselves to the study of the word time and time and time again. This is why the teaching and the preaching of God's word, when Israel was at their healthiest, always occupied the central position. Now, when Israel went sideways and they showed themselves unfaithful in a myriad of ways, it tended to have corresponded when the word was pushed to the fringes of her life and her mission, of her worship, and of her identity. And usually when that would happen, it would wreak havoc upon the people and they would lose their way. There are times when God would send them into exile and they would undergo the discipline of God. But God in his grace would stay committed to the word that he promised to them and he would stay committed to them even when they weren't committed to him and he would bring his people back. And there's one story, one of my favorites, is not long after the Israelites were brought back into the promised land after being in exile for quite a stretch and quite a season. A guy by the name of Ezra grabs the law. He grabbed the the written word of God that they had in their midst at that time and he entered what was known as a pulpit, this elevated platform, not to elevate Ezra per se, but to elevate the word in the life of the people of Israel so that there was a symbolic image of the word rising above the people so that the people would then come underneath the word in their lives. And it's a remarkable story in Nehemiah chapter 8 where all Ezra did was open the law and start reading from it. There was no music playing. There was no ambiance created. It was just Ezra reading God's word over the people and then people started responding as they were reminded of the holiness of God, as they were reminded of the promises of God, as they began to consider their history with God, it began to wreck them in a really good way. So the people were convicted of sin, they started confessing their sins, repenting of sins, but repentance was met with rejoicing because repentance and rejoicing always go hand in hand. You know, far too often we're afraid of repenting in our lives because we think, we think it's too hard. We think it's too somber. We're afraid to repent, and we don't even want to talk about repenting. But repenting in the Scriptures is always met with rejoicing. And when the ministry of the Word is put front and center in the life of God's people and it begins to conjure up repentance from us, it will also call us to rejoicing and celebrating the grace of God, the kindness of God that induces and draws out our Repentance, And so we see in that moment that the people of Israel would center their lives on the ministry of the word. And when you get into the New Testament and the church is birthed, nothing changes. Which is why in Acts chapter 2, after the Holy Spirit is given to God's people at Pentecost, as we learned about last week, the very first thing that happens immediately after that goes down, Peter stands up and he preaches. He stands up, raises his voice, and he proclaims a sermon, a message to the people to bring clarity to their understanding of what's going on, to bring an awareness of the gospel in their midst so that they would know who they were to be as people of the word. So you get into Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and we're told that the early church devoted herself to the apostles' teaching that we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, which is built upon the prophets of the Old Testament. To put it simply, we devote ourselves to the ministry of the word and the life of the church. We give ourselves to the preaching and the teaching of the Bible in a myriad of ways in the life of our faith family. And so tonight I want to do something that I don't normally do, but it's something I really like to do when given the chance, and that is I want to preach about preaching. I want to talk to you about about preaching. And I know it may sound self-serving. That's a risk I'm willing to take because I am a preacher, but I want to preach about preaching because I think this is incredibly significant for who we are called to be in this city and how we are called to go forward in faith for the sake of the city and for the sake of the world around us. So I'm going to do this by opening up Acts 2. If you got your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 2, and you're actually going to step into a portion of Scripture that represents 
in a strict sense, kind of the first, a technical sense, the first Christian sermon that was ever preached. The Holy Spirit has come down, filled up God's people. Peter steps, steps up and he raises his voice and he proclaims, he preaches. He verbally testifies to the beauty of Jesus in their midst. And that's when things begin to change. And so we're going to preach about preaching by looking at Peter's sermon by looking at the message that he shared, because I think what we find in this passage is the type of preaching we need. It's the type of preaching that we need as followers of Jesus in this city and in this world. Now, you heard a portion of this sermon read a moment ago by Kim. The the full range of it jumps all the way up to verse 16, and it runs all the way through to verse 36, and we're going to look at some other passages that kind of come before that and after that. Now, if you were to read this sermon, you could read it in about two to three minutes. That's all it would really take. If you're to stand up and read this, and so you might be thinking, well, why don't you preach for two to three minutes? Uh, but if that's your temptation, if you're wondering, well, if this is the pattern, maybe you should be as short as Peter. Uh, I would look at verse 40, because verse 40, it says that he also spoke many other words and he testified. So he may have preached for hours, we don't know, but we do have the gist of what he provided here in this passage. And this gist gives us a beautiful portrait of four things that that should characterize the, pre- the type of preaching that we need, what we need to give ourselves to as a church, what we need to give ourselves as hearers and doers of the word of God for this city and the world around us. And when it comes to the type of preaching we need, it starts by being empowered by the Spirit. We need preaching that is empowered by the Spirit. This is what just went down in the previous passage. Pentecost happened, the Holy Spirit was given, and then Peter, verse 14, it says, Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and proclaimed to them. Now, this is a different Peter than the Peter we met at the end of Luke's gospel. Remember, Luke is the first volume of a two-volume work. You have the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, two volumes of one work. And at the end of Luke's gospel, Peter was not a courageous communicator of God's word. At the end of the gospel, Peter was a was a cowardly disciple who was shrinking back from his association with Jesus because he saw the trouble Jesus had gotten into. And so when a little servant girl walked up to him and said, hey, aren't you one of his disciples? He said, no, I do not know that guy. And when another person came up and asked the same question, he says, no, I don't know that guy. And when another person asked the same question, he said, no, I don't know that guy. And in that moment, Peter showed himself to be a coward. But here in Acts chapter 2, most likely some of those people were still in the crowd that he's Privileged to address here, he's not shrinking back in fear. He's stepping forward in boldness. What's changed? Well, what's changed is the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has now empowered him so that he's filled with that fearless joyfulness, willing to say and do things he would not ordinarily say and do. The kind of preaching we need is preaching that is empowered by the Spirit For we recognize our need for the Spirit to speak God's word, to speak the gospel to those around us. So we need the power of the Spirit to enable our speech to make us bold and to make us courageous. Now, I love the phrase in verse 14 that Peter raised his voice. Now, I sometimes get the privilege of talking to uh, people who are aspiring to preach and to teach God's word in the life of the church or in some other setting. And in every one of those conversations, my, my chief advice to them is this. That if you aspire to preach and to teach God's word in the life of the church in any capacity, would you aspire to be a voice, not an echo? Would you be a voice, not an echo? Would you raise your voice, the voice that God has given you, to speak God's word? 
The difference between a voice and an echo is a voice is real and authentic. A voice is you. A voice is you speaking in light of what God has done in you, what God is doing in you. An echo is someone who's just parroting things that they've heard. Echoes are secondhand. But we want preaching in the life of the church that is marked by voices, not echoes. And so we want to encourage you and others to develop who God has created them to be so that they can rest in their identity in Christ and speak as God has wired them and not try to speak as they've heard other people speak. We want voices, not echoes, in the life of the church. But not only do we need the power of the Holy Spirit to speak God's word, what you're going to see here is that we need the power of the Holy Spirit to hear God's word. And this is when the preaching of the word becomes a shared responsibility. The effectiveness of the preaching in the life of the church does not rise and fall on my shoulders. It does not rise and fall on Bryant's shoulders or Jeff's shoulders or anyone else who may stand to proclaim God's word to us on a weekly basis. It doesn't rise and fall necessarily on me or a single voice. It rises and falls on our willingness to hear it. This is why Peter would say, I want you to let me explain this to you and pay attention to my words. You have a responsibility to pay attention to God's word anytime it is read Anytime it is talked about, you have a responsibility to bend your ear and to listen carefully. Now, if you're going to hear God's word, you must listen under the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit, which is why before you step into a setting like this, when the word is open and it is read and it is talked about, you can pray prayers like, Holy Spirit, give me ears to hear. I want to hear the voice of God in this moment. And so you pay attention, you listen carefully to the word of God every time you step into this moment. So the effectiveness of preaching and teaching the life of the church, yes, it depends upon the person leading and speaking, but it also depends upon those who are willing to hear, those who are willing to obey, those who are relying upon the Holy Spirit to interact and commune with the reality of God in their midst. So we need the power of the Holy Spirit to speak. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to listen. That's what preaching is. Preaching is speaking and listening, speaking and listening. That's what we do when we have this moment in our worship gatherings. Jesus said a very similar thing in Luke chapter 8, verse 18. He's, he tells his disciples, I want you to pay very close attention to how well you listen. I want you to hear, so pay attention. One group that did this really well in the book of Acts is known as the Bereans. In Acts chapter 17, there's a group of people who loved the Old Testament. They knew the Bible, and they understood the Old Testament scriptures better than most. And then Paul came to them, and he showed them how the Old Testament pointed out that Jesus would be the Messiah. And so he's proclaiming that gospel. He's connecting the dots for them. But the Bereans are so committed to God's word, and they're committed to paying attention and listening carefully that they didn't just take Paul's word for it. That after Paul interacted with them, they went, went home and they opened up their Bibles and they began to examine the scriptures to see whether or not what they heard was true. Is what that guy said, does that line up with what God has given me in the scriptures? This is healthy discipleship. This is how we should engage the preaching ministry in the life of the church. That whatever you hear spoken by someone like me, you would take those words and you would examine the scriptures in light of those words. And if what... The person like me is saying, if it lines up with the scriptures, then it should be listened to, it should be heard, it should be heeded. But if someone like me is saying things that does not jive with what the scriptures teach, that's when you close your ears. That's when you stop listening. 
Because the voice you want to hear in the preaching ministry and the life of the church isn't the voice of, isn't my voice or anyone else's voice. The voice you want to hear is the voice of God. That's what you want to hear. And so you prepare yourself for this moment by praying, God, give me ears to hear. You prepare yourself for these moments by being committed to examining the scriptures and studying the scriptures and reading the scriptures to measure up, okay, they said this, but it might not square with that or whatever the case may be, to examine this moment in a fruitful, productive way. So the kind of preaching that we need, it starts by being empowered by the Holy Spirit, but then the kind of preaching we need is one that exposes the scriptures and here's what I mean by this. When you look at verse 16, Peter begins to get into his message, and he says, "On the con- he, well, verse 15, he says, For these people are not drunk as you suppose, and since it's only nine in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel, and then he quotes Joel chapter 2. And he brings out what God put in the Old Testament. He's saying everything that you're experiencing right now in Pentecost, God put it in his word a long time ago. And so now he's going to bring out what God had put in. That's what, it means, that's what it means to expose the scriptures. Exposing the scriptures means to bring out what God has put in. And the opposite of that is called imposition or to impose. When you impose something, you're bringing something from the outside and you're trying to force it into something. But the kind of preaching we need in the life of the church is preaching that exposes the scriptures and doesn't impose our own ideas. Which means we want to bring out of the scriptures what God has put in the scriptures because when we're bringing out of the scriptures what God has put in the scriptures, that's when we hear the voice of God. That's when God begins to speak. That's when the scriptures begin to do the things that God intends for the scriptures to do in our, in our midst. Now, sometimes, unfortunately, the, the scripture in some instances can be treated in sermons and in messages like this. It can be treated kind of like the national anthem at a football game. You know, the national anthem, every game before the game is played and before it is enjoyed, before it is engaged, there's a song sang at the very beginning. And usually it's sung and then everybody moves on and nobody ever remembers that or nobody ever comes back to that. Nobody ever hearkens back to it. It's possible for someone like me who's proclaiming God's word or presuming to proclaim God's word to treat the Bible like the national anthem in our sermons and in our messages. Where we might read it, we might show a passing reference to it, but really the main course are the ideas that I have about this or the ideas that I have about that. And I get so far removed from the scriptures, that's not exposing, that's not bringing God's voice into the life of the church. That's not bringing God's voice into the life of God's people. And so what we want, the kind of preaching we need is preaching that says, I'm not going to impose my ideas. I want to expose God's voice. I want to bring out what God has put in. You see Joel doing this in this, I mean, you see Peter doing that in this sermon. And we know this because when you look at verse 16, it says, on the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. That's an implication that there was somebody else speaking through the prophet who wrote down the words that Peter is quoting here. And then when you drop down to verse 25, it says, for David says of them, and then David begins to, or Peter begins to cite Psalm 16, and then later he, saw, he cites Psalm 110, and in both of those instances, it's a little bit different where on verse 16, it says, on the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel, verse 25, for David says, says of him, and you're like, okay, well, well, what are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about the nature of the Bible. The nature of the Bible is to have dual authorship. There are two people who contributed to the writing of the scriptures. There's God's voice, which is the ultimate voice. That, that's the unifying voice that brings Genesis and Revelation together to produce a unifying harmony, telling God's story. 
But then you have a bunch of other voices that God uses to bring his word out, to write his word down. So you have Joel, you have David, you have Paul, you have Peter. You have the prophets of old and the apostles of new that God is speaking through to put God's word into writing for you and I to enjoy and to revel in today. And it's a beautiful thing because you don't find Peter trying to sound like Paul and you don't find Peter trying to sound like James. No, they each contribute their voice, their personality. It shows up in the words that they've written, but it's all being inspired by the Holy Spirit who is speaking through them in the creation and the culmination of God's word. And so when it comes to preaching and teaching, it's it's possible for somebody to look at a verse and say, you know, we can say on one hand, Luke says this, but it's even more true to say that God says this. This is why when we say the Bible speaks, God speaks, because God speaks through the writing of the scriptures. This is where his voice is to be heard. Now, what this means for us as a church practically, it means that as a church, we let the scriptures set the agenda for everything that we talk about. The scriptures determine our message. The scriptures determine our teaching. This is why ordinarily we as a church commit to going through books of the Bible sequentially. Because when you commit to going through a book of the Bible, a guy like me cannot just cherry pick and talk about the things that he likes talking about or to talk about the things that are easy to talk about. No, when you commit yourself to going through a book of the Bible, you're forced to do with, deal with everything that God says about everything. So if you come to a passage talking about sex and sexuality, what do you do? Well, you talk about sex and sexuality. If you come to a passage talking about power and greed and racism, what do you do? Well, you deal with power and greed and racism. You bring God's voice to bear on those situations and on those circumstances. That's the kind of preaching we need. We need preaching that is empowered by the Spirit, and we need preaching that exposes the Scriptures so that we can hear God's voice. But then the third dynamic, the kind of preaching that we need, is where Peter goes in verse 22. Really, verse 22 all the way down to verse 36. You see Peter, I love this, Peter exalts the Savior. The kind of preaching we need in the life of the church is preaching that exalts the Savior, that calls attention to the beauty of Jesus that mentions Jesus by name, that shows how Jesus is the message of the Bible. In Luke chapter 24, verse 27, this is how Jesus would handle the Old Testament. Listen to what he says. He says, Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. Jesus is saying there that everything written in the, that Mo, that's tied to Moses and the prophets, all of that was written concerning him. It was all leading to him. Verse 44 of Luke 24, he told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He's saying everything in the Old Testament, it's about me. And so the way that we handle the Bible, not just the New Testament, but the way we handle the Old Testament in the life of the church needs to be handled in a way that exalts the Savior, that showcases Jesus as the hero of the Bible storyline that showcases Jesus as the hero of our lives and of our church and ultimately the world. Everything in the Bible points to that, so we want to preach and to teach sermons that do just that. Now, not too long ago, I heard an introduction to a guy's sermon, and this is what he said. He said, today I'm going to tell you a really fascinating story from the Old Testament. This is the great news. If you're not a Christian, this is the perfect Sunday for you to be here because we're not going to talk about Jesus. Because this is from the Old Testament. 
Now, that preacher has just failed. That preacher has just done a grave disservice in the life of his church. He's done a grave disservice in the life of the people that he is called to serve. If we're not talking about Jesus, we're not talking about anything. And if we're not talking about Jesus, it can be argued that we're not really understanding the Bible. If you're understanding the Bible in your preaching and your teaching and your reading and your studying, every time you preach, teach, read, and study, it's going to draw your attention to Jesus because he's ultimately the one that the story is about. A guy like me should not be able to preach a sermon here in the Hallows Church and then step into a Jewish synagogue and deliver the exact same message. It shouldn't fit there because what sets Christian preaching apart is the person and the work of Jesus. It's the fact that we're exalting the Savior and we're telling everyone, look, we all need this guy. In fact, we all don't stand a chance without this Jesus. And so we want to exalt Jesus in our preaching and our teaching. And this is what Peter does here. He exalts Jesus beginning of verse 22. And he just kind of basically runs the gospel gamut. He just runs the gospel gamut in verse 22. He talks about the life of Jesus. He refers to Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth was a man. And he reminds people that, hey, that Jesus that was crucified, remember that he came from Nazareth. That was a detail that people could have overlooked. It was a detail that caused many people to turn away from Jesus because they assumed nothing good can come from a place like that. But here we're reminded of the life of Jesus, this, this Jesus who came from a podunk town named Nazareth, one that nobody was looking to to find the Messiah, one was nobody looking to to see the power of God on display, yet that's where Jesus came from. And then he says, God attested to this Jesus through miracles and signs and wonders, all these signs and wonders testifying to the fact that this Jesus was something, someone special. He was someone unique. So you have the life of Jesus in verse 22, but then he steps into the death of Jesus because the goal of the gospel isn't just to focus on the life of Jesus or the teaching of Jesus. The goal of the gospel always moves to his death. It always moves to his crucifixion. This is the reason why he came, was to die on the cross for our sins. Check out verse 23. Verse 23, it says, Though he was delivered up according to the God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and to kill him. Two things jump out there. He's referring on one hand, God is sovereign, and he was sovereign over the death of Jesus. But on the other hand, he's saying human beings are responsible Human beings put him to death. So there's sovereignty and culpability meshing here in a marvelous mystery. A mystery that we cannot unravel and we should not waste our time and our energy trying to unravel the threads of sovereignty and responsibility. Instead, what we do is we build an altar and worship the Savior. We say, okay, Jesus, God is sovereign. He planned your death for me. I'm a sinner. I'm responsible. I'm culpable for my rejection of God. I'm culpable of my rebellion against God. And so I'm coming to Jesus who died in my place for my sins. And then he moves from talking about the death of Jesus to the resurrection of Jesus. Check it out in verse 24. He says, God raised him up from, he raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death, saying, God raised Jesus from the dead. And I love the phrase. It says, death cannot hold him down. And what's true for every person who dies in Christ, death isn't going to hold you down either. Death can't hold down those who are with Jesus. Death can't hold down those who are in Christ. I find it interesting that after he affirms the fact that Jesus was resurrected and that death couldn't hold him down, he then starts talking about David, which was one of everyone's heroes in the room that day. Everyone there admired David. They looked at David as a hero, but he points out something. He says that David, 
You know, when he died, he stayed dead. He's buried. His tomb's right over there. It's still present and it's still full. But he's saying, that's not the case with Jesus. He's saying, look, David was good, but Jesus is far greater than David. And I know some of you have heroes in your lives, and your heroes may be good, but your heroes are not Jesus. And so what we want to do in our life and in our, in our maturation of the faith is come to see Jesus as high, more highly exalted than any other person, any other philosophy, any other worldview that we may come in contact with in this life. Because all of your heroes in this life, when they die, they will stay dead if not for Christ. And so we don't want to follow them in that direction. We, want to, we don't want to take our philosophies and our worldviews from our earthly heroes. We want our philosophy and our worldview to be established by the resurrected Christ. This is what happens in this moment. Verse 32, God raised this Jesus, and we are all witnesses of this. He's saying, look, we interacted with the resurrected Jesus. We saw it. We witnessed it. And it's changing everything. So that the worldview for the early church was the resurrection. The resurrection determined how they were seeing reality. And it is the resurrection of Jesus that should determine how you and I see reality. How you and I talk about death. How you and I talk about life. How you and I go about our days. The resurrection provides our worldview. This is what set Peter and the rest of the apostles on a crash course of enduring much persecution that they were willing to endure because they knew Christ was risen. They suffered much for the sake of the gospel. Why? Because they, were, they liked pain? No, they suffered much for the sake of the gospel because they knew Jesus was alive. They knew he was risen. That was their worldview. But then Peter keeps running the gamut. He goes from the resurrection of Jesus to the enthronement of Jesus. Verse 36, it says that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Now this is quite a swing from the Jesus of Nazareth where Peter started. He said, Jesus of Nazareth from that podunk town, he's now the enthroned king. God has made him Lord and Messiah, the one that you wanted to overlook, the one that you wanted to reject, the one that you wanted to crucify. He is now reigning and ruling over all of reality. It's a marvelous shift where the, Jesus is enthroned as the king of all kings. Now, I don't know how you respond to an enthroned Jesus. I'm not sure when you and I realize what it means for Jesus to be enthroned, to be exalted, to be reigning and ruling over all things. Because if we understood what that meant, you and I aren't going to treat him or his people or his purposes as trivial. If he is seated on his throne, we're going to treat him with honor. We're going to treat him with reverence. We're going to hallow his name in the life of our church. If he is enthroned in heaven, reigning and ruling over all, that changes how we approach Christianity. It changes how we talk about Jesus. It changes how we respond to Jesus so that we're not responding to him in trivial ways. We're responding to him in transformative ways. I love how C.S. Lewis describes this when he puts words in the mouth of Miss Beaver in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. She's talking about Aslan and what Aslan was like, and, and, she, and he makes, she makes this statement. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or they're just silly. If anyone can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or they're just silly. I imagine that one of the reasons why our, not, our knees don't knock more than they should is because we trivialize Jesus and we trivialize his people. We trivialize his purposes. We're not relating to him as the enthroned king of the universe who's reigning and ruling over all things, this king who one day is going to return to judge the living and the dead. And the next time this Jesus returns, he's not coming back as a suffering servant from Nazareth. He's coming back as a conquering king where all of his enemies are going to be put beneath the footstool. 
There's a powerful moment of this in Revelation chapter 6 where it says, Then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person. This means everyone, the rich and the poor, the strong and the weak, the influencers and those who have no influence in the world. Everyone in this moment is hiding in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. That's a strange phrase. The wrath of the Lamb, because the great day of the wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Knees are knocking in that moment because Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead. Which brings us to the fourth dynamic of the kind of preaching we need. We need preaching that's empowered by the Spirit, that exposes the Scriptures, that exalts the Savior. And we need preaching that ultimately and honestly engages the heart. That ultimately and honestly engages the heart. Look at verse 37. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? They're realizing that they were wrong and that Jesus is right and they need to know how am I supposed to respond to this and they are pierced to the heart. Their knees are knocking in this moment because they are being confronted with the reality of who they are and the incongruity between them and Jesus. We need the type of preaching that engages the heart, the type of preaching that will talk honestly to us about us. We need the kind of preaching that would be honest to us about what's wrong with us. Because only when we know what's really wrong with us are we going to be able to find the solution. Are we going to be asking, well, how do I respond to Jesus? How do I find redemption? How do I find freedom? How do I find deliverance? How do I find salvation? And we begin to find ourselves being pierced to the heart or our knees start knocking. And then we're like, well, what do we do? And then we hear the word of response. I want you to repent and be baptized. I want you to repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I want you to respond with repentance, and in this instance, baptism, because these were all new Christians. You know, when you become a Christian, this is what you do. You repent, you believe the gospel, and then you are baptized. You identify with Jesus. You identify with Jesus publicly in the midst of his people, and you do what you saw on the screen a moment ago with this young man who put his faith in Jesus and then asked to be baptized. That's what we do. But then after that moment, after you've repented and been baptized and you're growing as a Christian, you still live your life responding to Jesus in the same way. You live your life living in a rhythm of having your heart cut by the scriptures, having your heart cut by the reality of sin and your shortcomings and your fallenness. But then you also live your life having your heart healed and bound together by the beauty of the gospel so that you know that the grace that God gives you in Jesus is there for you always. And so you press into this reality, living in the rhythm of repenting and believing, repenting and believing. That's the Christian life. Repentance and faith isn't a point when you start the Christian journey. Repentance and faith is the posture you assume as you journey through this world. And our preaching should call for that. Our preaching should serve us well by reflecting that. We need preaching and preachers who are honest to us about us. That type of preaching that doesn't necessarily coddle us but the preaching that convicts us. Because when we are convicted, that's when we're going to start seeing Jesus rightly and responding in the way that is life-changing. That's what we want. That's what we need. That's how the church was birthed. The gospel was proclaimed. The people were cut to the heart. How do I respond? Peter tells them, and then in verse 41, so, they, so those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day were about 3,000 people who were added to them. The church was birthed through the proclamation of the word. 
And the church continues to be birthed in places all over the world and it continues to grow in the world that is through the proclamation of the word. This is the kind of preaching that we need. This is the kind of preaching you should hold me accountable to. You should hold other voices in our church accountable to. This is the kind of preaching we need. Preaching that is empowered by the Spirit. Pray for this. Preaching that exposes the scriptures, give us grace to be courageous to handle all that is in the Bible. Preaching that exalts the Savior so that we're constantly reminding people that Jesus is Savior and you are not. And we need preaching that engages the heart, that's willing to be honest with us about us so that we can run to Jesus and find life there, find hope there, find healing there. That's the preaching we need. That's the preaching I pray we receive. Let's pray together.